Hey, science nerds. Welcome back to another episode of MRSA Podcasts, where we explore research in various science disciplines at McMaster University to try and bridge the gap between Canada's most research-intensive university and the new generation of science leaders that it's fostering. I'll be your host, Alex, and today I'm joined with my co-host, Nicole. Hey, everyone. I'm so excited to be here. And today we're joined by Dr. Soleimani, and she's an assistant professor in the School of Biomedical Engineering here at McMaster. She is also a Canadian Research Chair in Miniaturized Biomedical Devices. So thank you so much, Dr. Soleimani, for joining us. We know you must be so busy, and we really appreciate your time. So could you just start off by maybe telling us a bit about yourself and perhaps talking about your research background and your interests? I know you made a shift from electrical engineering to biomedical engineering, so maybe you can speak a bit about that. Yeah. Um, hi, everyone. And hi, Nicole. Uh, yeah, I'm thrilled to be here to talk about my research. Um, I'm an engineer. I have all my degrees in engineering um, and um, uh, electrical engineering, uh, to be specific. Um, sometime, you know, between my master's and my PhD, I, I kind of um, I got gravitated towards biomedical engineering based on the projects that I was interested in and I started working on. Um, so I guess the, 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 the most important one of those projects is this electrochemical biosensor that I started developing during my PhD that, that was foundational to my career. And although um, the chip and the device were built you know, using engineering methods and principles, the application was very much biomedical. And to realize that application, I had to collaborate a lot with health scientists and, um, and, to, and, and learn about, about the application to make something that was actually relevant. And uh, slowly I, you know, as, as you said, I, I, I might've transitioned uh, to biomedical engineering. That's awesome. That's really cool. So you you mentioned that you work really closely with the health sciences department. And throughout this podcast, we sort of want to pick your brain on your repel wrap research, but also your biosensor research mainly. And before we jump right into that, I wanted to ask how important is multidisciplinary collaboration in your research and in your design process? Yeah, so it's it's really key, the multidisciplinary from, you know, during every stage of the project from, as you said, project design, all the way to testing and validation. Um, so it's great to have uh, those knowledge users, uh, be it clinicians, uh, have part of the conversation early on to design the project. And then, you know, it's important to, to collaborate with um, not just the end users, but also um, other engineers or scientists uh, in order to make um, really um, innovations with societal impact. Um, and then again, for testing and validating the applications, uh, it's key uh, to build those, those collaborations. I, I give you an example. You brought the Repel Wrap up. And, um, you know, I've I worked with collaborators from, from multiple disciplines for, for working on that. I mean, initially, uh, we're, we're very good at making cool materials, 
Um, and then uh, we teamed up with another engineer, engineering team with Dr. Didar, who they're, they're, they're also very good materials engineers, but they're also very good with running bioassays and, and helping us um, you know, see the big, big picture a little bit more clearly. And then we worked with um, uh, people in electron microscopy um, with expertise in electron microscopy that helped us really visualize what was happening on the repel wrap. We work with infectious disease experts, both virologists and, um, you know, and, and microbiologists um, uh, that to test the repel wrap against bacteria and viruses. So as, as we went through this process that is, is still, you know, ongoing, we, we went through, you know, I think multiple faculties and multiple departments at McMaster's to make something that's, that's socially, uh, that, that's relevant to, to the health and, you know, and uh, well-being of, of, of the public. Yeah, that's really neat. I guess most people don't realize how much interdisciplinary action is happening with research, especially when it comes to designing such complex products and really innovating to solve these challenging issues that your team seems to be trying to approach here with this repel wrap. So I'm wondering before we move further, if you could just give our listeners a description of what the repel wrap actually is and what it does. Yeah, so the repel wrap is, you know, it's something that looks and feels like uh, the saran wrap uh, that, that you would use, you're, you're familiar with like a cling film, but it's a shrinkable uh, cling film. So if you buy, for example, Coca-Cola bottles, they come, yeah, or, or water bottles, they come packaged with this, this shrinkable film that you can use it to, to basically uh, lift them up. And so we use the same type of commercially available wrap and we modified the surface with, uh, with, uh, with some innovative uh, nanoparticles. Um, and uh, when this, uh, this material goes through shrinking, which it normally does when you're doing food packaging, now you have this the shrinkable material modified with this stiff layer of nanoparticles that on it, it also has some molecular um, ligands as well. Um, and so it generates really three levels of structures. It has that molecular modification, it has a nanoscale and shrinking causes that nanoscale modification to lead to these microscale wrinkles. So it's like, you know, it's like a lot of the natural uh, materials that 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 bring in together uh, different levels of hierarchy to answer specific functional demands, and the functional demand this material is answering is omniphobicity. So what that means is that this hierarchy, uh, this structure hierarchy, both we have the physical modification and the chemical modification, will um, create materials that repel water but also things like oil. So any liquid you put on it, it will basically bounce off. And that helps us um, create an antimicrobial coating, one that you know, we, can, we can stamp the material with viruses or bacteria, but the, the, that material prefers to stay on the stamp or on the person's touch rather than get transferred to the repel wrap. And so, um, so it's it's basically a wrap that that remains clean even under you know extreme contamination. 
That's really awesome. And I think especially now after COVID, and, and I believe you started this research uh, even before COVID, uh, the COVID pandemic kicked off. So I was wondering if, because I think Health Canada actually announced that nosocomial infections or uh, hospital acquired infections basically uh, are the fourth largest origin of death in, in Canada. So the fact that you can prevent that transmission of these pathogens is remarkable. And I was wondering with COVID, if you have any plans of commercializing this or even beyond COVID, once the pandemic's finally said and done, if there are any plans for you to introduce this to healthcare or even in public spaces? Um, yeah, so as you mentioned, this was um, an in invention that we, we started way before COVID and we actually published um, also before COVID, and and really our uh, our vision was to first use these in hospitals. As you said, it's an environment where the importance of uh, you know hospital acquired infections or community acquired infections are well known. The threat posed by emerging pathogens and drug resistant pathogens are quite known and well understood and people appreciate um, materials that could be placed around the patient hot zone, for example, which is, you know, the patient, the, the IV pole, the bed railing in order to reduce the transmission from one patient to another. So that, that was certainly our focus even before COVID. Um, after COVID, I think even the general public started to, to understand and appreciate this more before it was mostly, you know, you, you would want to target something like this, the hospital sector, but now, I mean, if it is COVID, but, but in the future, it could be other emerging pathogens, right? And people understand the, the importance of technologies like this on everyday high touch surfaces, not necessarily in hospitals, but you know, anywhere from buses to, to planes to you know, other high traffic areas. And so we are working on, on commercializing this through um, a spinoff company, McMaster spinoff company uh, that I'm a part of uh, together with Professor Dadar and, and some other business and, um, and entrepreneurial um, people. So yeah, so we, we are moving in that direction for sure. And it's great that it, the focus of it gets to mitigate that in that huge risk of transmission. And especially if you get to introduce it to, to places that everyone touches. So public transport or elevator buttons even. But what I was wondering was with the current material, when you put this, this flexible hierarchical wrap and, and you're micro structuring it and nano structuring it, uh, I think it was with a plastic uh, foundation. I was just wondering if there are any other more sustainable materials that you've been investigating. Yeah, so that, that's really one of our areas of focus to focus more on one uh, plastic based plastics that that either can be recycled or you know they're, they're considered green but also the coatings we're trying to to find coatings from natural materials because there are a lot of you know um uh, hydrophobic coatings from things like bee wax to to other things that that you know you could even eat but you know once they're they're processed into nanomaterials they can replace you know our, our coatings so yeah that that's really our 
you know, the next big thing we're working on to make these coatings and also the plastic based material more sustainable. Could you even potentially convert these coatings into some sort of substance? I know you mentioned lots of larger facilities, maybe public spaces, schools. I feel like it would be quite challenging to have an actual material or a wrap. So have you thought of doing some sort of liquid spray, another medium? Yeah, I mean, these are all excellent questions. And, and fortunately, uh, we, we are working on those. Yeah, so we are working on Imagine a chopped up version of the repel wrap in a spray, right? Wrinkles in a spray, we call it. So that's, that's again, one thing we're working on to, as you said, to, to make the deposition on, you know, different surfaces much, uh, much easier and, and much more acceptable, right, to the public. That's awesome. And, and hopefully you get to use all those different materials and, I mean, to bring that to, to the real world, to the public space and commercialize it, I really think it would be revolutionary, especially with the spread of uh, drug resistant pathogens. There really is that concern that if you keep spreading it, they're going to keep mutating and to completely prevent that transmission would be incredible. But now I sort of wanted to change the, the focus here and talk a bit more about your biosensing research as well. Um, I know that the, the repel wrap is taking the limelight with the COVID pandemic, but biosensing and, and your research on point of care diagnostics, could you give our listeners sort of a background on the research that you've conducted and what you tried to accomplish with biosensing? Yeah, so, so I guess uh, I want to start by saying, you know, people might think, you know, what's the link? How can one person make these plastic wrap and, and also biosensors, you know, how does it all come together? And really what's the foundation of both of these technologies are, are cool advanced materials, right? And um, so we've, we've used these hierarchical materials in, in these wraps to, to create omnifobicity. And, you know, longer than that, I, I've been involved in using these hierarchical materials as electrodes uh, that we can use uh, to create uh, biosensors that look and feel like the glucose monitor. So they have a chip reader system, or maybe in the future, uh, the chip could be, you know, a wearable uh, plus, plus a, a cell phone reader. Um, and uh, so we, we've been working on, on these problems to solve problems in the field of biosensing, which means making biosensors more sensitive, more specific, easier to use. And really compatible to, to, to clinical samples. So the last one seems very obvious, right? You want biosensors to work with clinical samples, but probably more than 90% of the, the things that are published in literature might work well in the lab, but not work well in the clinic. So we're trying to solve those problems again with these advanced materials. And uh, we've, we've developed, um, uh, mostly protein and nucleic acid sensors that look at biosense, the biomarkers um, of infectious disease and cancers. And I think you, you touched upon something that I actually wanted to ask about where, where you discussed increasing the sensitivity of those photoelectrochemical sensors. And I believe you discussed in one of your recent publications how you were able to increase sensitivity to the point where you can distinguish between double strand and single strand DNA. And I just wanted to ask, 
what the implication of that is and why that high level of sensitivity is is revolutionary moving forward yeah so we can um you know we have developed you know multiple methods of doing that right to look at um single-stranded dna and in but uh, really double-stranded dna in the presence of a large background of single-stranded dna so that's really important right you that means that you can build a sensor where it's modified with single-stranded DNA. And if a small number of those single-stranded DNA strands become double-stranded DNA, you can, you can detect that change. So that means you can basically fish out for small amounts of double-stranded DNA in solution. So that has some implications. I mean, that, that, that is in itself important um, when you're looking at, you know, for example, detection of um, microRNA, direct detection of microRNA, which is linked, uh, its, its values linked to many cancers. Um, uh, and you can also use that as a way of detecting other stuff. So you can use DNA as a barcode and use that to detect, for example, proteins. So it's both directly important and it's it's important both for direct analysis but also for indirect analysis of other things as a barcode that's really cool yeah i know you mentioned okay using these biosensors to detect proteins and certain markers of different conditions and diseases and we know that you're doing some work using biosensing technologies in tb and endometriosis applications so i'm just wondering if you can talk more about that and what specific markers you're looking at and how you go about designing those sensors yeah so again we do a lot of collaborations um uh, a lot of time with biochemists uh, in the design of these, these sensors, a lot of them use uh, DNA machines. So these are DNA molecules that are you know, linked to each other or linked to proteins. And they take one you know, binding reaction and they can amplify um, uh, the number of DNA or generate barcodes all you know, without user intervention, all happening automatically at the molecular scale. So we work with a lot of biochemists to make that kind of, let's call it molecular translator. Um, I said, I'm an electrical engineer uh, to, to really um, engineer a system that can detect these DNA. We need those, those molecular translators that translate the, the, the presence of those specific molecules to an electrical signal. And then we also work with, with clinicians and we, we go by uh, the problems that they define. So one problem is rapid, for example, bacterial uh, diagnostics, where we know when we go to a, a physician and you know, we have, for example, sore throat, they take a swab and they might give us antibiotics uh, then, but they don't know for sure if that, um, uh, that's, that sore throat is called by bacteria, by a virus. And you know, if it's caused by bacteria, is it resistant uh, to this particular antibiotic or is it susceptible? So uh, really one of the solutions we are developing is a rapid uh, bacterial uh, diagnostic that doesn't need to, growth cultures, right? Typically, you, the reason it takes that long for, for the doctor to call you back is that is not that the lab is slow or the truck didn't come to pick up the sample. I mean, there's those delays, of course, but you actually have to wait 
uh, for the bacteria to grow, but we're trying to make culture-free uh, you know, bacterial detectors. So that, that, that I would say is it's, you know, maybe 70, 80% of our biosensor development is focused on uh, rapid culture-free bacterial sensing. Uh, we've focused uh, on the detection of uh, urinary tract infections. And now we're, we're also looking at identification of resistance. And then we also have, have, as you mentioned, have developed sensors that looked for a brain-derived neurotrophic factor for the diagnosis of endometriosis. Uh, that was a few years back. And the nice thing is that that technology got licensed by a pharmaceutical company. <laughs> so that, that's a good thing. Um, and then we also have recently developed a prostate cancer um, uh, a detection device as well to, to monitor. In that case, uh, prostate-specific antigen was the model biomarker that, that, that we looked at. Um, so yeah, I think these are the three success stories, the bacteria, endometriosis, and prostate cancer. I think it's awesome that you, you touched upon the vast applications of these biosensors and how you're able to apply them with slight modifications to, I mean, you talked about infectious diseases, and then you talked about uh, just endometriosis on its own, just gynecological uh, illnesses, and then as well, cancer. So it, it crosses the spectrum, which is incredible. But I wanted to also understand, is there sort of a, a trade-off where, where you have to think about cost efficiency? Yeah, I mean, uh, I always say, you know, a lot of people want to create biosensors for a lot of things, but um, it has to make sense. You have to, in my opinion, I mean, the the core, the hospital labs and places like Life Labs are getting better by the day, right? You are now able to to submit a sample, and it, sometimes if it's a biochemistry test, for example, you can get your results in a matter of hours. So when does it make sense to make a handheld, maybe home-based biosensor? It's for markers that, that patients need to monitor perhaps daily, um, you know, multiple times a day, uh, or for things like, for example, bacteria, uh, that the, the rapid testing, there is, there is a dipstick, but they, they perform very poorly. And there's an inherent um, you know, timeline associated with it. So, so it, it makes sense um, and it will be life-changing and it will be, uh, you know, it, it will have cost benefit when it is something like diabetes. I mean, that's why it's, this is such a success story because you have to monitor you know, three times a day and it, it will improve, there's a proven benefits of monitoring three times a day. And no patient wants to go to the lab or a specimen collection center three times a day. So that's a clear you know, success story. Some other things might be fine to get tested once every six months at, at, the, at the hospital. And so I think we have to be careful to, to choose problems where um, you know, really having a biosensor that enables point of care diagnostics, whether it's at the family physician's office, uh, patient home or emergency department, there has to be that speed, costs and kind of frequency balance there for it to make sense. 
Uh, you mentioned point of care diagnostics and using biosensing for those sorts of applications. I'm wondering if you have any projections potentially for where you see biosensing in 10 or 20 years, or if you're thinking or dreaming about some other problems that you want to use biosensing for in the future. Yeah, so I mean, there there used to be a time where, you know, people like we were happy with things that look like the glucose monitor, right? That was the ideal biosensor. And, and more and more people now are interested in wearables, right? Things that could do semi-continuous monitoring. So it's not just disease management, but more like health monitoring. We want things like that. And then I think the future, uh, I'm excited about technologies that um, that are, you know, they're, they're even more, um, you know, um, science fiction, there, there could be something a biosensor you swallow, and it can monitor, you know, the bacteria in your guts, or, you know, uh, other biomarkers in your body. And as a result, you know, send a signal uh, directly or indirectly uh, trigger, you know, a, a solution or a, a therapy. I think that's kind of the dream. Uh, it, it does, you know, it might seem a little bit scary, but, um, but I think that's, that's what a lot of people are excited about, the, the ability to do that kind of um, uh, in vivo and integrated um, therapeutic and diagnostics. Yeah, I was wondering when you said that science fiction idea with swallowing a pill or something or swallowing some substance, I don't know how much you know about nanobots, nanorobots, and how they could be used to even conduct lab tests and do this biosensing. And that's something that excites me a lot, too. I'm wondering if you know anything about that. Um, I don't, I don't. Not uh, no, I don't know much more than than you know what I've what I've heard. Um, but sure. I, I do know of you know like these these real pills that people can swallow and it could do a colonoscopy for you, uh, for example. Or you know, pill, I know friends who are working on systems where you know it, it's like um, it's you know the entire measurement system that we have in the lab, something you know large bench top it's you know it's like the size of a grain of rice and you can swallow it and that's your measurement system and as you said it has a lot of nano and micro technology in it um so yeah it's 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 all of that kind of coming together all the the hard hard materials the soft materials the smart materials you know all of those can come together to develop a system like this yeah, for sure. And when we talk about these types of technologies, and I guess bringing them to market and allowing a mass amount of individuals to have access to these technologies, I'm always curious to know and to hear from you what you think some of the barriers might be to bringing these types of technologies to market, you know, because there seems to be so much research on these potentially scalable technologies. And I wonder why most of them don't take it to that next step. Yeah, so there are multiple issues. I mean, one is you mentioned potentially scalable, but many aren't scalable. Uh, so scalability and um, creating stable and robust uh, systems is still a challenge. You can have something that you can get a terrific paper with, but it won't have the shelf life uh, or the stability to be moved around in a track and you know make it to the 
to the to the user that, that that's another thing um yeah scalability may just be too costly to to manufacture at, at a reasonable at a reasonable cost for the consumer um and again a lot of these systems fail when they go to clinical trials um, because they're they're really designed for working with purified samples in the laboratory under lab conditions. And once they get exposed to like this complicated variable, you know, human samples, they just don't work as well. But there's also non-technical issues. For example, it, it costs a lot of money to take these, um, these technologies to, to get regulatory approval. Uh, and um, and also, you know, it, it may be that you know it's it's um, it's hard to also raise money in the diagnostics field. We have had a couple of scandals uh, in the past, you know, of, of things uh, not working so well uh, and being kind of oversold. So so people are hesitant to to invest money in this uh, uh, in the, in these technologies but it's it's also expensive to 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 move them past the regulators and so um, so it there's always i mean this, the same is true for therapeutics right it's it, there's always a lot more innovation in the laboratory very few will make it to to the market uh, but the other thing is the market has to be there a lot of times we work on uh, solutions that then we realize, well, there's no problem really. I mean, this is a cool solution, but we're not really solving an important problem. Uh, so I think all of those contribute to, to, the, to the lag between the lab and the clinic. Definitely. And I think you touched upon a great point there where you said there has to be that demand in the market. And that sort of ties back with your research on endometriosis because it's not particularly uncommon but I feel as though the research on it is scarce. Uh, and I was just wondering, as opposed to only the barriers, not just financial barriers that you face in your research and the market demand, but do you see any other barriers to the research in the sense that perhaps gynecological research isn't as well-funded as something that isn't just uh, female specific? Do you ever see barriers like that? Um, I'm, I'm sure they, they exist. I mean, with endometriosis, I can't really comment. I mean, much of the clinical side of things was led by Professor Foster at McMaster. Um, uh, so, you know, the, a lot of the funding came from that side. Um, but absolutely, in general, a lot of times we have to work on things that are well-funded, right? We... Um, you know, there, there, there could be other important problems, but it may not be considered as exciting, as hot, and it's, it's very difficult to find. So people do change their, um, their research area slightly, or some people even drastically because of those, for sure. Yeah, I think when we think about, I guess, barriers, but also talking about, is this research relevant? Is it solving a true problem? I think after COVID-19, a lot of labs have probably shifted gears or they've come up with new solutions or new research directions. So I'm wondering how your lab has adapted to COVID-19 and if this pandemic has shifted maybe the objectives of your research or new methods or ideas. 
Yeah, so for us, um, it's interesting you ask that because we, we always had an infectious disease focus, right? From the surfaces to the sensors. Um, so um, the general directions have been changed, um, but, um, but we, we, I mean, we have uh, certainly tested and optimized our surfaces for also viruses. And we have a diagnostic test uh, that's uh, being developed together with uh, Professor Yingfu Li and John Brennan and the team they have uh, on electrochemical sensing of, of COVID-19. So um, for us, uh, interestingly, COVID has been kind of like a catalyst. Like there's all these things we wanted to do and we were looking for the right postdoc and the right researcher. And then when this happened, we're like, we have to, let's just do it. Let's just do the, the virus, um, uh, you know, testing and the, the sensors, you know, with the resources we had. And, and I think people have been in, in our lab have, have also been a lot more flexible, right? So, you know, uh, have, you know, the, the students, uh, you know, I, I mentioned there during lab closures, um, there's opportunity to work on these projects because they're essential projects. And you know, the, the students have really stepped up and, and shown flexibility. So I think we've all learned to, to be more flexible uh, for sure and, um, and more dynamic and um, trying to use our resources in the best possible way that we can. And um, you know, and we don't take things for granted because we we always we 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 say, well, let's do this experiment because next week we we might not be able to be here. So so we we all we have all learned a lot, I think, over the past year. Definitely, I think I think it goes to show that COVID kept us apart. We're all socially distanced, but it also brought together that that sense of community and that togetherness where collaboration especially in the research field was accelerated. Uh, so I was actually wondering post COVID, if your research focus has shifted, even once the pandemic is done, if there are any other focuses that you now have your eyes on that you're interested in pursuing in the, in the future, maybe in the next five, 10 years. Yeah, so, I mean, I've always wanted to bring together the smart surfaces and the sensors together. So that, that could be a cool direction uh, to have things that repel, but can also sense that that's an interesting direction. Um, uh, again, I have my eye on some, if not in vivo, but some uh, ex vivo sensing. So these are things that interface with the human body uh, like like kind of more advanced wearables. Um, so um, so we're, we're moving on the, those directions. I think the, the infectious disease focus will always stay there was there before COVID, during COVID and after because you know it's um, who knows where the next when the next emerging pathogen is gonna come and uh, and there's you know th that's always been a problem uh, for for humanity right uh, so I, I think you know I think the the focus uh, will 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 remain infectious disease but some other really cool and as I said I hope to be able to do some more science fiction type stuff. But the, I think our, our approach will, will I, I, I want to keep that flexibility and being dynamic, uh, even post post COVID.
That's really awesome. I actually can't wait to hear what you plan on doing with wearables. I think there's a lot of potential there as well to kind of merge computers with humans and just to be able to sense for other markers of other diseases, you know, not just diabetes. So I think, yeah, that, that, that'll be a really cool research direction. So I just want to shift gears now. I know I want to be mindful of the time. We have maybe five minutes left with you. So since our audience is undergraduate students, we just want to ask some questions about undergraduate research. So the first one we kind of have is just related to your own lab. Have you ever had undergraduates in your lab? What sort of roles do they play in your research? Yeah, so we've had a lot of undergrads, you know, I think I've trained, um, uh, you know, in the past five years, you know, 50 something undergrads in, in, our, in our lab. Uh, uh, I guess the, our approach is that each undergrad will have their own project, which is a branch of um, a graduate student project. So I typically don't have undergrads just assist because that normally isn't that motivating. And, um, and you know, once you have, then through that, you won't have clear goals and the projects don't have a beginning and middle and end. I like to have projects that, that, that are, you know, uh, that, that have a clear goal and, and the, the student can do somewhat independently, but it will be branch of a, of a graduate student project. It's almost like those graduate student ideas were, uh, you know, the grad students say, oh, I wish I could try this. This would be really cool, but I have to focus on my thesis. But then now this undergrad will come and, and fix it and do it. <laughs> and I think that's really great because it gives the undergrad a sense of purpose in the lab. They don't just feel like they're doing a job that anybody else could just do. And it that I feel is such an important factor when it comes to motivating passion and a love for for research as well. So what I wanted to ask here was, since undergraduates, you, you mentioned that you've had 50 or 60 in the past five years. I think I yeah, I was just I think it's 50 uh, in the past 10 years, because I, I, I had my numbers, it's 50. And uh, since I pretty much started, uh, and I, I was just going to tell you, I, I, I made a mistake. No worries. No worries. Okay. So, so 50, or, 50 or so students in the past yeah. 10 years. Yeah. I, I was just wondering, what advice do you have for undergraduates who might be listening to this that are interested in working in your lab? What kind of uh, skills and, and motivations do you look for when, when you interview these students? Yeah. So, I mean, I, the most important thing is interest. I want them to, to know about what we're doing and clearly are, be able to articulate why they're interested in the stuff we're doing. I think that's the number one. Uh, the second thing is their long-term goals. You know, are, are they, are they looking at long-term research or entrepreneurship and whether this fits in their long-term plan? I think those are normally, you know, the most motivated students. Uh, I care less about, you know, their, whether they come from this discipline or that discipline or what kind of lab experience they've had in the past. It's more of a learning experience for them. And, and the, I want them to be excited and enthusiastic and motivated. That, those are the most important things. I definitely think that 
that's great advice for any undergraduate especially if if they're interested in going into your lab it's it's such a great privilege to have your own project as an undergraduate in in a professor's lab so just because we're we're cautious of time and we don't want to hold you for too long uh it's been an absolute privilege to talk to you to learn more about your repel wrap to learn more about biosensing and to learn more about the role of undergrads in your lab and we all at MRSA just want to say thank you so much for your time and good luck with all of your research moving forward thank you so much dr Soleimani. it was a pleasure to have you yeah thanks for having me i really enjoyed talking to you guys and it's nice meeting you and uh, yeah thanks for inviting me